Welcome. This is Mind the Shift. My name is Anders Bolling. My guest today is, in my opinion, probably the most exciting we've had on this podcast. Why? Well, there's not many people who can claim that they have much to say about what life itself truly is. But this guest has a lot to tell us about the deepest questions we can ask ourselves. Who are we really? Why are we here? Dr. Eben Alexander was a successful neurosurgeon in Charlottesville, Virginia, when he 12 years ago contracted, suddenly contracted an acute illness and had one of the most spectacular near-death experiences documented. His chances of survival were down to 2%, but he recovered and he has since dedicated his life to tell the world about what he experienced and what he understood. Dr. Eben Alexander, I am truly happy and honored to have you on the show. Welcome. Oh, the honor is mine, Anders. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a joy to be here. So you have, of course, told about your, your mind-blowing, in, in the literal sense, mind-blowing experience in your book, Proof of Heaven. Uh, and it's, it isn't something that lets itself be explained, uh, be described easily in a few minutes. But I would uh, like, to, like you to try anyway, and I know you have done this many times. So for our listeners, it happened back in November 2008, I understand. So what was it that happened? Yes, well, I think it's important to point out that uh, before that illness, I'd spent 54 years of my life owning a very kind of conventional, modern, scientific worldview. Um, and that basically was the notion of physicalism, that the physical world is all that exists, that somehow we have to explain how the brain creates consciousness or produces it, and that our existence is birth to death and nothing more. Um, and a lot of that had come from my father. He was an academic neurosurgeon, head of a neurosurgical training program, but he was very scientific. Uh, and he was also quite religious. He had grown up in a, uh, his father was a general surgeon, uh, and, and my dad was, uh, had a profound belief in God and power of prayer, but he also uh, believed in science tremendously. And so for me, uh, this was a tremendous challenge, what I ended up going through. And the, the good news and the reason that my experience is taken so seriously by the scientific community and medical community has to do with the medical documentation of the damage to my neocortex, which by all of our principles of modern neuroscience should have eliminated all but the most rudimentary forms of consciousness. And yet the story I'm going to tell in just a minute was really one of an extraordinary uh, expansion of my conscious awareness. So uh, inexplicable given the documented damage to my neocortex, which is fortunately available as a medical case report, came out in Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in September of 2018. And uh, <clears throat> that report was written by three doctors who were fascinated by my case, given the uh, degree of my recovery, which really has no explanation in Western medicine. Um, and it documents uh, even more fully than I did about proof of having the amount of damage. But now briefly to get into the experience itself for your listeners, uh, and of course, this is told in great detail in the book, Proof of Heaven, and in subsequent books, 
uh, Map of Heaven, and then our most recent book, uh, Living in a Mindful Universe, which is really mm. the proof of heaven. This is the scientific kind of analysis that brings all of it together. Okay, um, Living but, in a Mindful Universe is the title. Yes, and, and that is the most current book. This is written with my uh, current life partner and co-founder of Sacred Acoustics, Karen Newell. Yeah. Um, but it goes deeply into really joining science and spirituality, which is an inevitable result of the study of consciousness uh, as we move forward. But getting back to my experience, important to point out to people, one of, one of the atypical features in my experience, although most of it is a, a kind of a, a powerful uh, kind of super example of an NDE, but one thing of note is that I was amnesic. I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life. I had no words, no language. I really went into this journey with a completely empty slate, uh, which uh, in retrospect was very important for many of the lessons that I was to learn from it. And that journey all started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm. Uh, I was a speck of awareness. I, I had no body image during any part of this journey. Uh, but uh, at that beginning, I remember it seemed to go forever. Of course, I had no memory of any past. Uh, and when I describe it, it sounds foreboding. It was kind of dark and subterranean. Uh, but I was rescued from that by a slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. Uh, and that light served as a portal and it ushered me up into this brilliant, ultra-real gateway valley, as I call it. It had many Earth-like features, but also a profound spiritual presence that I'll describe. And in, in that gateway valley, I was merely a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. And there were millions of other butterflies, colors beyond the rainbow, all looping and spiraling in vast formations. Uh, and we were above this very verdant, fertile valley uh, that ha had, uh, was very lush with life, had absolutely no sign of, of death or decay at all. Uh, and in that lovely meadow, there were sparkling uh, waterfalls and the crystal blue pools. It was a real paradise. Uh, and there were thousands of beings below dancing, lots of joy and mirth. And of course, I had no language at all when all of this occurred. I just had the phenomenal experience, which is what is so sharp and clear in my memories, even to this day, 12 years later. Uh, and yet when I came back to this world, I wrote it all down. And that's where the words come from. But it's important to remember, <clears throat> these journeys are very difficult to put into earthly language because they're so extraordinary. Our modes of knowing, of learning, uh, are very different. You know, when we're in these bodies in the physical realm, in four-dimensional space-time, we have a very limited kind of narrative of our sensory systems informing us about things going on around us. And yet in those realms, <coughs> our conscious awareness expands dramatically. And we essentially slip outside of time and space in this kind of false notion of a here and now. We become other aspects of the scene. For example, in that gateway valley, that is a place where people go through life reviews. You know, that old saying, your life flashes before your eyes. Mm. Well, that actually goes back more than 2,400 years to the writings of Plato, Plato mm. that very concept. And, and uh, so in, in my journey, <clears throat> I witnessed uh, all of these souls dancing down in the meadows below, and it was all being fueled because above were these swooping angelic, <clears throat> angelic choirs emanating chants and anthems and hymns that were uh, 
uh, just astonishing, and they were fueling every bit of this. And I remember this sense of the soft summer breeze blowing through, and that was my first awareness of the divine, of the infinitely loving and healing power of what many would call God or Allah, Brahman, Jehovah, of Yahweh, whatever your words are, that uh, great spirit. Uh, that is a force that is absolutely real at the core of our very conscious awareness. That's something we all reunite with, um, you know, when we leave our physical bodies. And to me, my first awareness of that was this beautiful summer breeze that blew through. In my writings weeks later, I called that a divine wind, the breath of God. And that was right around the time that I was aware that I was not alone on that butterfly wing. There was, okay. there was a beautiful young woman with sparkling blue eyes, high cheekbones, high forehead, uh, a broad smile. And her message to me was very powerful, empathic, emotive, uh, and not spoken. Uh, but it was through a complete mind meld of connection with her. And that message, I think, is the central message I was to bring back uh, in, in uh, telling my story and sharing it with the world. Because it's really for all souls. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You will be taken care of. And I cannot tell you how profoundly uh, it, uh, uh, comforting and, and validating that message was. It, it basically welcomed me home. It showed me this is our true spiritual home. This is where you can feel completely comfortable. This is kind of the origin of our, our life as souls. Um, and... It was then that I uh, was aware of these thundering hymns and chants and anthems coming down from swooping angelic choirs above that were visible to me as these uh, pure orbs leaving sparkling golden trails against that blue-black velvety sky. And it was those uh, anthems and chants and hymns that were engendering this incredible uh, festivity and joy going on below us and, and, and totally amplified that beautiful message of the woman on the butterfly wing. And it turns out that was just not, the not, beginning. Not to, not to uh, interrupt you, but that the identity of that spiritual guide, the woman on the butterfly wing, is also very interesting, isn't it? You tell well, that uh, yes, and uh, there's a bit of a spoiler alert. Okay, uh, maybe that. we shouldn't, uh, but we can just uh, say yeah, that I, it's I will, interesting. I'll give you a little hint of that towards the end of this story, because it okay. really followed by many months of uh, the experience itself. Yeah. But... Uh, so, but this was just kind of a stepping stone, this gateway valley, uh, because those angelic choirs provided portals to higher and higher levels. Uh, and, and I ascended all the way to what I call the core. And in that process of ascendance through that portal of, of music that was provided by these angelic choirs, <clears throat> I remember seeing all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down all of those uh, kind of lower spiritual realms collapsing down and into what I saw as this complex oversphere uh, in infinite dimensional space and all of eternity, that tiny little aspect of the universe was there as lessons to be taught. I mean, by the time you get to this core realm, our uh, language fails almost completely. Uh, I often have to use the analogy, it was kind of like standing on the edge of a black hole on the event horizon where you have one foot in where time is completely stopped and the universe is kind of crystallized uh, to those first steps outward uh, of parcellation out into what emerges from these spiritual realms all the way down to this lowest material realm that we live in. Uh, but in that core realm, I, I was told, you're not here to stay. You'll be going back. 
but there, but we will teach you many things. And I remember this brilliant orb of light there that, uh, uh, in retrospect, I looked back upon as kind of a translator or interpreter uh, that was there to um, uh, help me to, uh, you know, as a soul, as kind of this uh, sentient being, to more uh, perfectly bond with that infinite healing force. And uh, that was one of the most amazing things about this. I grew up in a Methodist church in North Carolina with very conventional religious teachings and certainly becoming identical and one with that God force was not one of those teachings. <clears throat> and yet that, just like so many other near-death experiencers, uh, is very much what I experienced, was that seeing that the very root of our conscious awareness is this infinitely loving and healing God force. Now, of course, this doesn't mean our little ego awareness. So many people think that, you know, the little voice in the head, their uh, ego is who they are, and that's what they identify with. But no, no, our consciousness is a far grander mystery than that. That little ego voice is nothing more than an annoying roommate. Uh, but on this journey, <laughs> I saw that very clearly with this oneness, with that God force. And it turns out that uh, in so many of, of those revelations, I would then tumble back down to that earth where my view, where it all started. But the good news is I, I recognized early on by remembering the musical notes of that melody that I initially heard with that spinning light that had approached me slowly in that earth where my view, uh, those notes would then bring, conjure up that portal again and I would ascend back into that gateway valley. Always welcome by that beautiful young woman on the butterfly wing, as you point out. And uh, this, the story, uh, I oscillated several times through those layers um, uh, from top to bottom. And then finally, there did come a time where I could no longer conjure up through the, the musical notes that beautiful portal. Uh, to say I was blue or sad at that moment would be a vast understatement. But I also knew by that time that I could trust, that I would be taken care of. And that is the deep and profound promise that I think these kind of journeys give us uh, as sentient beings in our relationship with the universe. And that's why it's so important to study these and kind of learn from them. Uh, but getting back to the point that you mentioned early on, what happened here at the very end of my coma journey, which all happened within seven Earth days, uh, is that I witnessed thousands of beings around me going off into the distance. And uh, I, I sensed this murmuring energy coming up from them. When I wrote it all up weeks later, I said that was prayer because I remember they were all there with their heads bowed, some with hoods, uh, some with candles in front of them. Uh, and this murmuring, I couldn't understand any of the words. My you know, language was still completely gone. Uh, and yet the comforting power of it, that loving power, I attributed to the power of prayer. And that's why I encourage people, your prayers will get through no matter where your loved one is on their journey. Uh, so that kind of prayer and, and invocations of love and connection are always important in helping us to kind of maintain uh, the soul awareness and the growth that we came here to go through. And, and after seeing all those beings off in the distance, uh, I also saw six faces that appeared. These are very crucial because five of them were people who were physically present uh, during the last 24 hours of my coma experience. And of note, there were many family and friends who had been, you know, in the hospital room with me during the earlier six days of the coma who were not apparent to me at all. So, in fact, they helped to kind of isolate that the vast majority of the coma experience happened at a time when my brain 
brain uh, was documented to have tremendous damage to all eight lobes of the neocortex. And that is one of the reasons, and that's all evident through that case report in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, uh, because uh, it really violates everything that modern neuroscience claims to understand about, about the neocortex and its role in facilitating the brain's kind of... It, it wasn't functioning badly. Function. It wasn't functioning at all. Well, that's pretty much it. The neocortex was off, and, and that's very well documented through my neurologic exams and uh, uh, through the scans that showed all eight lobes of my brain affected. And that, of course, uh, is why the story has gained so much power with the scientific community, because in yeah. you know, many tens of thousands of NDEs, we don't necessarily have uh, medical evidence of the, of the brain damage uh, in the setting of such a profound and robust uh, conscious experience. But it turns out that the sixth of those faces that I saw uh, was actually of a 10-year-old boy. And of course, this is all explained in Proof of Heaven. Uh, that was day seven of my coma. As you pointed out, my doctor said I'd gone from a 10% chance of survival at the beginning of that week when I presented to the ER in coma and seizing uh, to a 2% chance by uh, day seven of that coma. That's when they held a family conference saying it was time to stop the triple antibiotics I'd been on uh, because it didn't seem to be working and my exams were so horrific, they thought there's no way I was going to recover. Uh, and at best, with that 2% chance of survival, that would be associated with a month or two in a hospital, then a few weeks or months in a nursing home, and then death. That's why the doctors recommended stopping antibiotics. They had protected my youngest son, Bond, who was 10 years old at the time, from that news most of the week. But that Sunday morning, he was outside the room and overheard this dire prediction. And that's when he came running down uh, the hall into my ICU bed, opened my eyes, one eye looking over here, one eye looking over there, neither pupil responsive. Those of you in medicine know that's a horrible uh, situation. And I, I promise you, I did not hear him with my ears or see him with my eyes, but somehow at the far depths of my spiritual existence at that time, far gone from this material world, the message got through. He was pleading with me, Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay as if that would make it so. And of course, I did not understand the words at all. I had no idea who this being was. But for the vast majority of that coma journey, I had always thought it could continue or it could cease. It did not matter. And now, all of a sudden, everything mattered because I could sense in his kind of pleading tone that there was another soul out there that was very dependent on me and my figuring this out and returning to wherever he was. And that was the first truly frightening aspect of the entire journey. Okay. That brought sheer terror to me that, oh my God, I've got to figure this out. Uh, and uh, then it was then that I kind of struggled my way back, back to this world. Uh, and in fact, when I first uh, kind of came to uh, alertness in that uh, room, uh, ICU room with a, a breathing tube still in, and I, I was kind of awakening, the doctors were shocked by this. Uh, they extubated me, and I didn't even recognize loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, uh, my sons. I had no idea who these beings were, uh, and, but, and language wasn't there yet, although it came back very rapidly. Literally, language came back within a few hours or days, childhood memories within a few weeks, all of my semantic knowledge of neuroscience, of cosmology, physics, uh, every bit of that returned over about two months. Uh, and that was a tremendous shocker. And there are gigantic lessons in that experience about the nature of consciousness, how it is not uh, produced by the brain at all, but is filtered in. That's the newest 
kind of scientific theory, but it's a primordial consciousness that we share. And I've really spent the 12 years since that time uh, not only sharing my story and getting to hear thousands of stories from other experiencers. Many times they tell me I've never told anybody this before, but, and then they might share a story uh, that it happened 50 years ago, but the memories just as mine are as sharp as can be today, they would be very sharp because of the reality of these experiences. And, and since um, in those 12 years, I've also worked uh, with uh, more than 100 scientists around the world who are interested in consciousness and realize that our conventional scientific model of physicalism or materialism is absolutely false. You know, in trying to understand consciousness, it completely falls apart. We need much grander models. And in fact, the deep mystery of quantum physics is uh, wrapped up right in the core of that mind-brain question. Uh, so this is right at the cusp of leading science. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why the scientific community is uh, gaining tremendous interest in these stories. And in many ways, uh, my story has uh, been a key to open the door for so many of them to the reality of these experiences. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I want to come back to that because I, I'm also very much into those scientists and people who are spanning the border between, between science and spirituality. So I hope to, I want to come back a little bit to that. But back to your story about what you experienced during that, those seven days of coma when your brain wasn't functioning at all and you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have been able to experience anything really. Uh, what many people would probably dismiss this as, as, as a dream or as a dreamlike state. And many end years uh, say that, no, 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 it's not like a dream. And I, I'm sure I know that you have that view on it yourself. What, what, what is it that, that differs this experience from a dream? Well, the most important thing, it was far more real in fact, this existence in the material realm is dreamlike compared to that. That is much sharper, crisper, far more alive. More than half of near-death experiencers uh, use the words like I used uh, in describing it to my oldest son, who was majoring in neuroscience at the time. I told him it was way too real to be real. Uh, and that was very early on in my recovery before a lot of my neuroscientific knowledge had come back. Uh, and th that's the thing that is so astonishing. That's why these, these things are so surprising. They should absolutely not occur, and yet they do. They occur in large numbers. Um, and I think that, that also brings up another point um, that was addressed in that case report. And anybody who wants to look at the case report on my medical records can go to evanalexander.com, look at my blog postings, and go back to September 2018, the blog posting about that case report in the third paragraph, you have a link directly to the medical case report itself. But the interesting thing is those doctors were faced with the same problem. Uh, the issue is modern neuroscience would tell you very proudly, if we're to have a dream or hallucination or confabulation, any phenomenal experience at all, that the details of that experience must be assembled in some part of the neocortex the outer surface of the brain. That's the part that makes us human. And that's why the scientific community pays so much attention to my case because of the documented damage to that neocortex. No dream should be possible. No hallucination mm. should be possible. Mm. And that gets us actually into one of the most uh, important aspects uh, in terms of scientific study of this kind of thing. Uh, and this is 
something we go into in detail in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, but it has to do with functional MRI and magnetoencephalography studies of the brain in people under the influence of psychedelic drugs, especially serotonin 2A drugs uh, like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, LSD, um, um, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the active principle in ayahuasca. Uh, these all have common sites of action in the neocortex. Uh, and the interesting thing is if you study the brains of people under the influence of those drugs, uh, and especially those who have more profound phenomenal experiences on those drugs, what you see is the entire brain gets less active. There's no part of the brain that becomes more active. It's a beautiful example of the brain is not the producer of consciousness. In many ways, the brain gets in the way. Uh, and this, th those drugs have a way of moving uh, the physical brain and its inhibitory mechanisms out of the way. Uh, and anybody who's ever taken those drugs would think, well, if my brain is creating consciousness, this is the wildest consciousness I've experienced, and therefore my brain must be lighting up with a Christmas tree. No, it's disappearing. It's going off the grid. I even uh, had the first. So you can you, you can, you can access access other dimension dimensions by by way of taking these drugs or. Absolutely. That uh, now I'm not recommending that anybody go out and use those drugs because <laughs> okay. if you have any kind of uh, spiritual or mental imbalance, they can really throw you off the cliff. Uh, mm. And uh, so it's important. That's not my my point. And in fact, I would steer people who are interested. Uh, what I do recommend is meditation, and a very yeah. powerful tool to enhance meditation is sacred acoustics. Uh, now, disclosure here, uh, my life partner and the co-author of that third book is the co-founder of sacred acoustics, uh, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be a proponent of it if I didn't use it an hour to a day, and I've been doing that for the last decade or so. I've used sacred acoustics, binaural beat brain entrainment to get deep back into my coma, back into my NDE, and developed a very robust relationships uh, with the various entities, beings, and oh. that profound God. You have actually been able to get back to that realm that you, that you were in. I have, that and not just to recover memories, but to mm. actively engage with that realm. Now, one thing that I must uh, tell you, though, is that full-blown ultra-reality that I experienced yeah. deep in coma is not a quality that I have encountered in meditative approaches. Okay. my NDE. And I, I keep trying and maybe someday it'll happen, but it could be that, you know, my brain has to be so completely disengaged as it was in my coma. And maybe I cannot fully duplicate that with binaural beat brain entrainment. But I will point out another objective source about this question is Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E. He wrote a book about 20 or so years ago. It's called Dark Night, Early Dawn. Where, and he had a lot of experience with high-dose LSD work for spiritual analysis and spiritual growth. Uh, and he also used a, a, a more primitive form of binaural beat brain entrainment. And in his book, he actually comes down saying you can make as much, if not more, progress with the sound, with the binaural beat brain entrainment, than you can with the, uh, with the LSD work. Um, mm. And so the sacred acoustics, it's, it's about, is it, the, is it connected to these so-called solfeggio frequencies? So certain frequencies that activate uh, things. I don't, I can't, so I can't it, explain it, it myself. I can tell you the thing that makes it different, uh, and this is, uh, I'll just explain the binaural beats. And again, the, in Living the Mindful Universe, we go into great detail about all this. But in uh, binaural beats, 
were a phenomenon discovered by a Prussian physicist back in the mid 1800s. He -hmm. found that if you put a pure tone of of sound into one ear and a slightly different, say five hertz, four hertz, eight hertz, different frequency in the other ear, that somewhere in the brain, uh, you, you have this wavering sensation that's equal to the arithmetic difference between the two input signals. And it works up to about a difference of 20 to 25 hertz. Beyond that point, the brain loses track of it. Uh, but in that very powerful range, you know, 0 to 4 to 8 and 12 hertz, which are brain frequencies that are uh, associated with you know, dreams and deep dreamless sleep, etc., uh, going down into alpha and theta and delta ranges, uh, those are kind of the target zone, and those are easily accomplished with binaural beats. Now, people in the 20th century recognized binaural beats could enhance out-of-body experiences, like Robert Monroe demonstrated. Uh, also, people who used uh, uh, remote viewing, that is the ability yeah. for psychic spies to discern information at a distance, they found that remote viewing was enhanced with binaural beats. Uh, okay. And I think the magic to it, or the reason this works so well, is you got to remember that all the sounds you've ever heard, including sounds that might have engendered uh, a profound transcendental conscious experience, like a chant or anthem or hymn, uh, these are all sounds that are processed uh, in the acoustic cortex, in circuits uh, in the temporal lobes that have basically been modified to their current status in human beings over the last few million years. That's very, very different from where binaural beats and sacred acoustics are processed. They are processed way down in the lower brainstem in a circuit called the superior olivary nucleus, uh, which arose more than 300 million years ago. There's a general principle in evolutionary biology that if you want a deeper understanding of some function, uh, you want to follow the anatomy and follow the evolution backwards in time to get a clue as to how those systems work. So for looking at something like brain and consciousness, if we go back in time and look at the ancient anatomy and the kind of evolution of uh, parts of the brainstem that are still viewed as important as uh, uh, participating conscious awareness, uh, you know, I mentioned the neocortex. Well, the neocortex is the part that really calculates makes, all the makes us modern details. modern humans. They say exactly. That's the point. But by going to this extremely primitive system that actually was used to localize threats, and it's still active so that when I hear a sound behind my uh, head, that circuit in my lower brainstem calculates the arrival time of those sounds to my eardrums down to microseconds. Uh, and that, you know, the sound's moving a thousand feet per second, and yet that circuit can calculate where, where that sound is around me just through calculating arrival times. And it turns out that we can harvest the power of that ancient circuit, which is near what's known as an ignition system for binding consciousness together uh, and, and modulate it. And I believe that is how it is setting us free. And that is how, uh, if you read the testimonials page on sacredacoustics.com, you'll find a tremendous amount of benefit that people have gotten from this and kind of spiritual journeying and meditation. And it's a great way to thin the veil and basically access that primordial mind, that, that universal mind that so many near-death experiencers have bathed in, in when they've left the physical body uh, and brain behind and then come back to this world. But the beautiful thing is that ambience is one of pure love and healing, uh, kindness, compassion. That's, the, that's what we need to bring back to this world. And that is what yeah. is sorely missing from this world. And that is really Truly. the primary <laughs> lesson of near-death experiences 
to help us recover that sense of unity with each other, with all life on this planet, we're all together. Uh, and uh, really with that primordial uh, mind, that source of, of all that occurs in this universe, uh, is that binding force of love brings us all together. And that's what NDEs uh, and this neuroscience of consciousness as we evolve will help to make this a general principle that all will come to understand. Hopefully so. You wrote in your book that uh, you, when you visited this, these, these realms, these other dimensions, and especially, I guess, the higher realms, uh, closer to the source or whatever you want to call it, the God, the God force, that you got to know so much. You got to know everything about, uh, about life and how it works. But then when you re-entered this physical realm, uh, you, you forgot about it like all of us do. But is that to say that you really forgot about it or you have an inkling that you, you somehow will be able to recover all that fantastic information and be able to, to spread it to the world, so to speak. And well, is that maybe well, you, you the, know, the, the purpose of yeah, your the, life now, as you see it? Well, the interesting thing about NDEs is you do bring a lot back. Uh, but, I, but there's also what appears to be some kind of program forgetting. You know, for example, we know that sleep and dreams are very important. And they're not just important for humans, but sleep is crucial for animals going way down the evolutionary chain. And, and much of the reason for sleep uh, is dreaming. And yet we don't necessarily remember the content of the dreams. They're very important. In fact, uh, there are syndromes where uh, people can be unable to sleep uh, for weeks at a time. It can even be fatal. Uh, so dreams are very crucial. And yet we don't necessarily bring all that content back. So um, the fact that this knowledge exists, that we can access it through NDEs, and through deep meditation and other spontaneously transformative experiences, I think it's very important. Uh, and we should focus more on kind of the lessons we can gain there and bring back to this world. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Karen and I have taken this tact as we did in Living in a Mindful Universe and as she has done with her company, Sacred Acoustics. And those who want to learn more about that, go to sacredacoustics.com. Uh, but it really has to do with the fact that we know we can tell people about this all day long. Uh, you know, you can talk about it, you can write it and let people read it and you can share the stories. But at the end of the day, in many ways, the answers truly lie within us all. And it's really up to people to cultivate personal experience. And that's why we are giant proponents of meditation, of going within, of trying this for yourself. Uh, and I think we can all start to bring back uh, tremendous messages. I mean, the most profound message that comes back from, you know, the hundreds of thousands of reports of near-death experiences through the literature and on the internet, et cetera, is really one of love. It's that we're all in this together. Uh, in many ways, that life review that I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, your life flashing before your eyes, um, it's almost like the golden rule is written into the fabric of the universe. Because in those life reviews, and these go back, as I said, at least 2,400 years to the writings of Plato across all cultures and belief systems, but in the life review, the interesting thing is that uh, you experience it from the kind of emotional perspective of those impacted by your very thoughts and actions. You don't experience it as your self, quote unquote. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why life reviews can be such powerful teachers. Because, you know, we, we have one way of looking at things from our ego perspective and when we live, live our lives. But then when we get to see it in the life review and feel the power, Hour. Like if we've been busy, busy handing out pain and suffering to others, uh, you know, that doesn't make for a very pleasant life review because 
in this beautiful light of that God force. And the God force is not doing any judging. You know, that is the thing most near-death experiencers agree upon. Any judgment is really there with our higher soul and our soul mates, our soul group, loved ones who have already left the physical world who are there for part of our life review. That's where <clears throat> if we've done that greedy, selfish, uh, hurting others, pain and suffering out to others, we have to bear the brunt of it in the life review. It's a great kind of equalizer. It's a great kind of course correction. Uh, from my point of view, it's the reason that uh, sentient culture and, and humanity in general has overall, the long arc of history builds towards justice and connection uh, because these life reviews are, are gently nudging us all uh, towards this, um, this grander performance. Another piece that must be mentioned here is you cannot make sense of any of this unless you realize that reincarnation is a huge part of the package. When I came back from my journey, and believe me, when I grew up in that Methodist church in North Carolina, reincarnation was absolutely not talked about or allowed. And yet when I came back from my journey, I knew the only way to explain that infinitely healing, loving, and all-knowing God uh, that I had encountered, as so many other NDEers have, was to know that the suffering of innocent like children and animals is only there as part of the group lesson of learning and growing. That was not their soul's one and only pass uh, through this material realm. And the, I didn't know it at the time, but then my further study after my coma, when I knew reincarnation was real, I found the scientific support for reincarnation is overwhelming. If your uh, audience goes to uvadops.org, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, scientific group but right here where I live in Charlottesville, uh, and we're good friends with uh, many of the scientists there. But for the last six decades, they have been studying, first under Dr. Ian Stevenson, now under Dr. Jim Tucker, and then there's Ed Kelly, Bruce Grace, and many others involved scientists who are very skeptical and hardcore uh, scientific, and what they're uncovering uh, is all this incredible evidence of non-local consciousness. And for the reincarnation story, that involves more than 2,500 children where uh, their past memories of past lives have actually been uh, uh, discerned objectively through other other means, uh, mm. and you know it's it's such a giant database. When you start reading through it, you realize no, this is the way all this really works. We need yeah, to explain well. it. It completely violates conventional materialist neuroscience, but that's because conventional materialist neuroscience is completely wrong and denies yeah. <laughs> many of these stories. So. Well, and then there's the concept of time, of course. You were talking about um, the life reviews and, and past lives, but as far as I understood by reading a lot of this and also meditating a bit and trying to wrap my head around what's, what's actually going on, there, time doesn't really exist. And, and when you are in those realms where you were and all the other NDEs, you, I, I understand that the time disappears in a way. Can you, can you explain how that, how that is, how, how, how that feels? And do you, in some way, when you have come back here on Earth after that experience, can you, can you feel, so to speak, timelessness in the background, yes, even now, absolutely. when you're here? Well, well, I can tell you from a scientific perspective, uh, you know, as someone who studies physics and cosmology, time is one of the, probably next to consciousness, is one of the deepest and most profound kind of non-understood uh, issues going on in our world as yeah. much as people think, oh, time. Well, it's obvious. It, you know, we watch the clock. It takes a long time. 
flows like that? Well, no, it is an absolutely mind-bending and profound mystery. And I would submit that's because time and consciousness are absolutely interrelated in uh, profound ways. Uh, and, and you cannot understand the passage of time without understanding much more about consciousness. But life reviews, uh, in many ways, show us, uh, because they're not some vague, sepia-tinted memories. These are sharp, crisp, alive, vibrant. You live them from other people's perspective. This is an absolute um, going through of events in a very real fashion. It's not just kind of a distant memory. Uh, and it's, it's a way of showing us that behind consciousness, as we slip beyond the veil and get into these incredible realms, that time is a very different thing. I call it deep time. Mm. And unfortunately, other people have used <clears throat> the phrase deep time. Maybe I need to call it uh, you know, primordial time or uh, something like that. But the reality is uh, that there's a deeper stage of time that allows for kind of the evolution of souls, of the, it allows for the evolution of all consciousness. It is not slave to the earth time that is really just part of the drama. It's part of the stage setting for us yeah. to live these lives in these physical bodies. And yet there are far And that was actually understood already in the 20s by Einstein and others uh, in practice. I mean, absolutely. Well, pe well, that, people didn't understand it at the time, but 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 I mean, he he said those things that this is the, the time that we are talking about here on Earth is just a physical thing. Right. Well, you know, it's it's uh, amazing. You tell that story. We re reiterate that story in uh, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. You'll find I love Einstein, so I quote him a lot. But we tell that story of his friend Michel Besso, who uh, you know had whose family had helped him get into the. Uh, Zurich Polytechnic Institute way back when he was a young lad having trouble to make his way in academics and Michelle Besso's family helped him uh, do that and, and also uh, Michelle worked with him in fact he was the sounding board when Einstein wrote his paper, paper on special relativity. Fast forward to the uh, 1950s when uh, Besso died a few months before Albert Einstein died that's when Einstein said that famous quote uh, you know, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, um, well, my friend has gone a little bit before me, but that is no problem. Those of us who understand physics realize that past, present, and future are cleverly wrought illusions. Yeah. You're exactly right. Einstein was <laughs> making crystal clear that time was one of the deepest mysteries, and it remains so today. I will tell you, in the physics community, uh, there's tremendous interest in, in trying to get a better handle on what time actually is and represents and, and how it works. <clears throat> but I, from my point of view, given the, uh, the uh, very deep and primordial relationship of consciousness itself with reality, I believe the only way for us to come to a deeper understanding of time is with a much deeper understanding of the nature of consciousness and this relationship between brain and mind. Mm. Well... Uh, did you go back to working as a neuroscience uh, after you had your experience, or have you skipped that? Well, yes. Uh, it turns out the, the work I was doing before my coma, when I went into coma, <clears throat> I was working uh, at the uh, Focused Ultrasound Surgery Foundation in Charlottesville. And that uh, is a group that promotes a very powerful medical technology. It uses ultrasound uh, energy for therapeutic effect, and and I'm very I'm still enamored with that technology. Uh, I still support it. 
and I went into coma uh, during that job. And, and to the shock and amazement of the people I worked with, including my uh, boss, who was a neurosurgeon, um, you know, he, he heard when he heard I was in, uh, ill with his meningitis, et cetera, he knew I'd never be back. He knew that was it. He, he got, got enough information from that. And so when I called him a few weeks later and said I thought I could come back to work, he, he thought he was talking to a ghost. But in fact, <laughs> I, I did get back to work within three months. I was back full time doing that work. Uh, and I continued to do that for another year and a half or so. And then I was getting ready to get back into clinical neurosurgery. I'd gone back with my uh, private practice group in Lynchburg, and I was going through uh, you know, a, a set of steps to reorient to the operating room after having been out of the operating room for about two years. And uh, it was during that time, of course, that I was also writing up my experience. I'd started giving talks about it. And neurosurgery is not something you can do part-time. I mean, mm. I'm not the kind of guy who would op operate on a patient and then go gallivanting around the country, you know, giving talks about other topics. I'd be there for my patient. And what I realized beginning in about June of 2012, four months before Proof of Heaven came out, was I could no longer do patient care justice. So I had to leave it behind. Now, I'm very grateful. Uh, you know, I've, I've treated many thousands of patients in my career. Uh, the vast majority of them, uh, I think, were uh, very much improved by the encounter, and I'm very proud of that. I wrote more than, um, uh, you know, 150 papers of peer-reviewed literature and in the scientific yeah. literature. Anybody who wants to look at all that can see my CV and the talks I gave on my website on evanalexander.com. But the reality is I had to leave it behind because mm -hmm. I knew that my, my pathway forward was much more deeply involved in sharing this story, working with other scientists on consciousness, and trying to help the world in this profound and important yeah. revolution and awakening. Um, and all those years in neurosurgery were definitely not wasted. I had to know every bit of that about the brain to make any sense of my NDE. Uh, yeah. you know, well, it makes your story more credible to many people, I guess. Well, not only that, it's the only thing that really makes it interpretable. You know, mm. if, if I'd been uh, pretty much any other profession uh, and, and had this experience, when I came back with my, all my memories gone and not recognizing loved ones and have my doctors tell me <laughs> the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks, we don't know how you're coming back here, but somehow you seem to be recovering. You know, if I, if I hadn't had the neurosurgical knowledge that was still returning to me over yeah. those months post-coma, I would have just accepted what they said uh, and been deeply mystified by it, but, but probably not known enough to realize, no, you can't True. have that True. kind of experience with yeah. a damage to this brain that was so well documented in my medical records. Before we run out of time, let's segue over to uh, the scientific uh, community in general. Uh, we are talking about it now. And so the, the, all the others that are out there, all the other scientists that haven't had NDEs, I mean, the scientific community has been stubbornly materialistic since enlightenment, you might say. And uh, you were one of those, uh, as, you have, as you have said. Have you noticed any change in attitude among scientists lately towards this notion of an afterlife? Yes, I would say the scientific community is shifting very, very rapidly. Uh, okay. For one thing, I would steer your listeners to GalileoCommission.org. GalileoCommission.org. Uh, there's okay. a beautiful manifesto there uh, written by Harold Wallach. 
that uh, really kind of states the case beautifully. That uh, manifesto was done in conjunction with more than 100 scientists around the world. I'm one of those 100 scientists on the advisory board for that group, and that paints very clearly the picture uh, moving forward. Uh, I'll tell you that back in the early days after my experience, 2012-2013, uh, interviewers used to try and set me up with uh, you know, a materialist scientist who represent the other side. Oh, it's gotten okay. harder and harder to find uh, anybody that has anything meaningful to say from that camp, because as soon <laughs> as they start researching the literature, they realize what we're saying is true. Consciousness is primordial. We are eternal spiritual beings. This is something that is deeply revealed by the scientific study of consciousness and the brain-mind uh, connection. And we've had yeah. 5,000... Sorry? No, no, go, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, we've, we've had 5,000 years for the religious community with work based on prophets and mystics who have had profound experiences like NDEs, uh, where they've witnessed the grander reality and tried to bring that back to this world. With those spiritual texts like the Bible and the Quran, the Torah, etc., to help bring that to the masses. Uh, and then people basically had prayer and meditation as their own avenues in. But the world got kind of tired of that arrangement, the universe did. And in the late 60s, doctors developed techniques to resuscitate cardiac arrest patients. So since the 1960s, we populated this world with literally millions of souls yeah. who have been to the other side and come back to tell the tale. So the and study this, material has, has exploded, so to speak. It, it is exploding. And the, I mean, the future is absolutely determined. The pathway that I'm pointing out here of recognizing- How long time do you think it's going to take before this is mainstream in, in, in well, the science? What I'll tell you is the evidence is already there. Any scientist who wants to study the evidence it is there. You can start with living in a mindful universe. That book has a very rich uh, bibliography and goes into great detail in a multidisciplinary uh, scientific assessment that shows the reality of, of the spiritual nature. Uh, there are many other books coming out, scientists going public about this around the world. Uh, the only reason anybody will still say, no, 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 these NDE stories are nonsense, there's no such thing, is because they haven't done their homework. Uh, and that's no excuse for, uh, you know, trying to be a spokesperson to lead humanity anywhere. Uh, and, and this really is inevitable. And it's good news for all of humanity, because ultimately the deepest lesson is that we're all in this together. We're bound together through the force of love that is so apparent to those having had an NDE or other spiritually transformative experience. We can all use meditation and centering prayer to achieve much greater healing uh, you know, placebo effect is a beautiful example of, of the power of mind over matter. And placebo yeah. effect has been the gold standard in medicine for more than 60 years now. Uh, all it does is reflect the power of our minds uh, to bring us more into alignment with who we came here to be. And that often involves healing, uh, healing of physical, mental, emotional healing is always basically uh, at its root, spiritual healing. And this bigger, grander view of self and of our powers, the power of prayer uh, to influence our health uh, is just the beginning of how we can make this world a far better place. And in essence, it's really time for humanity uh, to realize, you know, climate change is the biggest problem we have, and it's our problem. We've created it. Uh, a million species are a threat of extinction. All you have to do is look at the United States. The whole western part of the country is on fire now. It's unprecedented. 
uh, the hurricanes. We're approaching, you know, W, the last uh, hurricane name. And then we go to the Greek alphabet. That only happened one time before in 2005. Climate change is absolutely stunningly, shockingly, frighteningly real. We must take the bull by the horns, take responsibility. Uh, as human beings, we owe it not just to ourselves, but to all life on this fragile planet. We need to get rid of our addiction to fossil fuels. We need to stop choking the world on plastics. We need to treat animals with respect. They're a deep part of the spiritual essence of all of reality. Uh, it's time for homo sapiens to truly finally become wise. Because in fact, when I look at homo sapiens now and I see the warring and conflict, I see all those million species threatened with extinction, I see one of the dumbest forms of life possible. And it's threatening to destroy this beautiful planet that is the miracle of billions of years of evolution. Uh, you know, it's, it's an absolute crime what humanity is doing to this world. It's high time we woke up. And that's what I believe this huge awakening is all about. Hmm. Fantastic, beautiful. Dr. Eben Alexander, again, a thousand thanks for joining us and good luck with the beautiful task of spreading your insights. Well, thank you very much, Anders, for uh, sharing this with the world, for getting it out there. You're doing your part and that is a great service too. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm.